So welcome to uh, the first of the uh, Sutta classes, which I've done for a while. Uh, before, when I've taken this Sunday afternoon class, I've usually chosen a sutta and translated it. I have to translate it because obviously the Buddha taught in Pali. And some of the translations which you have, they can be okay, but there's a lot of repetition. And usually the standard translations which are used are ones done by people like Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi or in the past by Venerable Jnanaponika. And these are great scholars, but they tend to translate word for word. When you translate word for word, it's very good to get some idea of the meaning. But if you are presenting these suttas uh, to an audience, sometimes the repetitions are a bit too much and you lose the sense of the, the power of what the Buddha is saying. Uh, later on, as we go through here, I may be able to see, because it's only maybe on page one or page two, where you have just the, the 12 ways of looking at the Four Noble Truths. And to make it easier for people, this is not changing the way the, the, what the Buddha said, but it's just arranging it in a way which people can understand clearly like 1A, 1B, 1C, and 2A, 2B, 2C. Have you got that up there on the... Is it not working? Just on page two or something. Just when we start the, the Four Noble Truths and just the end of the first page. Oh, I have some water already. It's fine, yes. Yeah, thank you. Have you got the 1A? One B, one C? Yeah. Yeah. You see, that's just a way of presenting it, and it's why not, because it makes it easier for people to understand. And so, uh, when I uh, did this translation of the word of the Buddha, it was just most of the words are exactly the same as you find in a standard translation. There are some different translations of words, but nevertheless, uh, it is pretty much the same. And also, I've taken out a lot of repetition, uh, simply because that does tend to uh, take away uh, some of the power when things are repeated overly, and they're not adding anything new, just repeating what was said in the, in the line before. And hopefully, it is more powerful and the other thing which I would say, this, the monks know this very well, that in translating from one language to another, um, learning Pali, I was told by my, one of my friends who spent a long time in Sri Lanka, he said that it's kind of embarrassing for a monk in Thailand, we're not, they weren't taught Pali, and we knew some Pali but didn't really know it deeply. So because I did have a brain, I decided to learn Pali. It wasn't that hard to understand. And the person, or rather the books which I used, were the books from a Venerable, not Venerable, so Professor, uh, what's his name, Richard Gombrich. A.K. Warder, sorry, that's right, yes. From, uh, from A.K. Warder. And A.K. Warder, his introduction to Pali, he said something very powerful in the beginning of his, in his introduction where he said that 
in translation you should never translate word for word but sentence by sentence, phrase by phrase because a unit of language is not the word but by the phrase. An example I always use and I'm sure you've, uh, hopefully you've heard it before is when people say about uh, it was raining cats and dogs. You know, if you translate that directly into Pali, it will confuse many people or into Cambodian, into any sort of language. But what it really means, you translate phrase by phrase. Raining cats and dogs mean it was raining heavily. So this is one of the reasons why we should never translate word for word. We miss too much of the meaning. And so through these translations, when I get to some points where I have translated, not word by word, but idea by idea, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, it does make the whole thing much more powerful. Okay? And lastly, before I start, um, some of this is already online, but sometimes the discussion which we have during and afterwards gives the whole uh, Sutta class much more power. Yes, you can read this online, it's online somewhere, but nevertheless, to be able to discuss it and hear it does give it that extra impetus. So here we go, before any of the suttas, because this is the word of the Buddha, I always will have to introduce it with Bhaya Namotasa. Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa So this is uh, starting off the Buddha addressed the community thus. Sometimes you say the Buddha addressed the monks thus, and that makes some people feel that they're not really included. Whereas the lay people or the nuns or whoever else. And so it's nice to be able to use a bit of um, change to make sure that, yes, it was addressing just monks at first, but that was also meant to also apply to everybody else who has the privileges of hearing this. The Buddha addresses the community thus, it is through not fully understanding and penetrating the Four Noble Truths that I, as well as you, as well as you have experienced a cycle of rebirth and death for a very long time. Because of not fully understanding the Noble Truth of Suffering, we have experienced a cycle of rebirth and death by not fully understanding the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the no noble truth of the cessation of suffering, and the noble truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, that we have for a long time experienced the cycle of rebirth and death. I will pause there and say, do you know the Four Noble Truths? Do you? Do you fully understand and penetrate the Four Noble Truths? Because if you did, then you would not need to worry about being reborn again. This will be your last life. You'll be an arahant. So, 
first of all, when I heard that, you thought, very easy to pass by it. Yes, we know the Four Noble Truths, but do you? And this is one of the first parts of, the, of what the Buddha is saying here. Because you don't fully understand it, and you don't penetrate them, that's why you experience the cycle of rebirth and death again and again and again. So let's actually try and find out what we don't understand. That's why we teach this. Please don't just assume, yes, I've heard of Four Noble Truths so many times. There must be something you haven't seen, haven't understood yet. And the Buddha continues, So long as my penetration and insight into these Four Noble Truths as they really are, and there's a bit of an indication there, as they really are, not as you assume them to be, as they really are, was not thoroughly complete in three phases and twelve aspects, then I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. But when my penetration and insight into these four noble truths, as they really are, was thoroughly complete in their three phases and twelve aspects, then did I claim to have awakened the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. And this, if you don't know, this is from the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta. So what are these three phases and twelve aspects? And of course when you go down with one A at the top of the page and four C at the bottom of the page, are you still so scrolling? Good. You can actually see just when you, just even um, call it 1A, 1B, 1C, 2A, 2P, 2C, it's much easier to under understand. First of all, this is the noble truth of suffering, what the truth of suffering really is, what dukkha really is. And number two, 1B, suffering is to be fully understood, not partially understood, but fully. And they have this word, uh, parinya. Pari means like completely, and the nya uh, means like nya, and it means like janati or nyana, nyana. It means like really seeing it fully and see that that job has been completed. The suffering has been fully understood. And this is the thing that many people have an idea of what dukkha is. They haven't fully understood it. And to be able to fully understand it, here we go again, I'll be saying this so much in these talks, when the mind gets very, very peaceful, very, very still, into those jhanas, there you experience states you've never experienced before, things vanishing which haven't vanished ever before in your memory in this lifetime. And because of that, it gives you a much bigger idea of what suffering really is. It's a simile which I've often used, is when a person is born in jail, lived all their life in prison, and all they know is prison, then you think that, well, prison sometimes is not that bad. You have many advantages, advantages in jail. I mentioned that, I think, on Friday night, that sometimes going to prison as a monk is much more comfortable than in Bodhinyana Monastery. You get more food, more comfortable, there's many, many different things there. 
So because of that, that sometimes people don't realize the suffering in this human life, and they think they do, and they think, why on earth are these three men here in brown, why have they renounced the world? You know, I'm not quite sure of your situation, but Venerable Dhammadipa is a very successful um, electrician. You know, he's, uh, he was, um, what was it, not emotionally, but yeah, emotionally very stable, a nice wife, nice kids, enough money to be able to retire and live a nice peaceful life. So what suffering did he see in life to want to renounce all of that and become a monk? He made that choice voluntarily. There must be something in renunciation which you saw was much better than life in, at home. So what did you see? Why do we keep on uh, medi meditating, living simply, renouncing so much? There must be something there which you've seen or got some idea of, sniff off, which is much better than just having to go to work or just retiring and living a nice, peaceful, quiet life at home. And of course, there is something there. And the more you see, you know, the, the bliss of renunciation, the joy of peace, the freedom of not having anything, then when you really see those things very, very deeply, I'm not trying to convince you, I'm just saying that this happiness and bliss which you get in monastic life is much more than you'd ever expected was possible. And so you understand what's not part of that deep Buddhist life is suffering. So it needs to be fully understood and when it's fully understood, then that gives you a different aspiration in life. Not to, not to accumulate and amass more things, but to renounce more things and be more peaceful, more simple. And we have the next noble truth. This is a noble truth of the origin of suffering. Wanting which causes rebirth. And sometimes people ask about you know, rebirth, is that part of Buddhism? And of course sometimes that makes me think, what have you been taught? Of course it's part of Buddhism. You know, even Ajahn Bramali, you know, I'm very proud that he often says, if people think there's no rebirth, basically they don't understand Buddhism very much at all. But when we accept at least a possibility of rebirth, then why? Many of you tell me you want this to be your last life. Is that good enough? Just wanting, not, not wanting to be reborn? And of course that's not good enough. You understand this very wanting is the cause of rebirth. And that's the origin of suffering, wanting something. And I have good fun teaching because sometimes people ask me, what about wanting good things in this world? Wanting may all beings be happy and well. Is that a cause of suffering? Yes. All beings can't be happy and well, can they? You're going against the law of samsara. It's a nice wish. You try and relieve suffering as much as you can. But can that be achieved? Are you just living in some uh, fantasy land? Wanting is the cause of rebirth. And to be wanting the origin of suffering 
is to be abandoned. All wanting. Not just wanting for bad things, not wanting for material things, wanting for anything. And wanting the origin of suffering has been abandoned in the Buddha. And that's an interesting thing to understand. To be able to abandon all wanting, every part of wanting. And of course, that is what we do when we meditate. Let go. What does let go mean? It means let it be, no wanting. Make peace with whatever's coming up. Be kind to it, be gentle to it, don't want anything. And sometimes people say, well how on earth are you going to get enlightened if you just don't do anything, you don't want anything? And the answer is very quickly. <laughs> if you can practice that, it goes against the grain to sit there not wanting anything in the whole world. I really mean that. It means the mind is not moving. When it doesn't move, it becomes still. When it becomes still, things disappear. The 3A, this is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, extinguishing that wanting. And the end of wanting, the cessation of suffering, is to be realized. I use that word um, um, quite uh, carefully to realize it, not to understand it. Understand it is more like theoretical. That's the first noble truth, to really fully understand it, comprehend it. But to realize it is to feel it for yourself. For yourself, that's not a good word, but I think you can understand what I mean, to have your own personal experience of this, to realize it states when you don't want anything in the whole world. And there is that type of meditation which I've taught here, I usually teach it on Vaisak, about a Buddha Nusati, reflection on the Buddha, but not the usual reflection on the Buddha, just getting people to sit there, close their eyes, get their body comfortable, and imagine that they are the Buddha. They're sitting down, they're imagining that you're, and if not the Buddha, a fully enlightened human being, sitting down with your eyes closed, imagining you're in some forest somewhere, or in some cave, a long way from anywhere, and just try to build up the scene for you. There's a soft wind blowing, there's no sound of any human beings, and you've just penetrated the truth, there's nothing you need to do anymore. You don't have to worry about any family, the family have disappeared. You don't have to worry about health. You're fully enlightened now. You don't have any worries about the future, no jobs, no things to complete tomorrow morning. No worry about where you're going to go the next day. You're fully enlightened, you're at peace, you're free. And I build it up, just a one minute is not enough. You build that up minute after minute after minute, and after half an hour, it's amazing just how people get a taste of freedom, just using their imagination, and feeling what it must be like if you are totally enlightened, free from everything in this world, with no burdens for the future ever again, no worry about sickness or death, 
no worries at all about the past, totally light and free. And just imagine what that must be like. And for the Buddha, he said, only when that wanting, the origin of, sorry, the end of wanting is to be realized, and the end of wanting, the cessation of suffering has been realized. What you do in that little meditation is just a temporary taste of what it kind of must be like. But when you're an arahat, it has totally vanished. All the suffering which you know, you know, you experience, it's like a torturer always harassing you. And all of that is totally gone. You know it's gone. And the fourth noble truth, this is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering, the noble eightfold path. The noble eightfold path, the way to the cessation of suffering is to be developed. That development means it's the training, it has to keep on being done until it becomes so powerful that the origin of suffering has been abandoned and you know that it's been realized. But this is what we call the training. The word is bhavana. And sometimes people ask me, a long time ago, what type of meditation do you teach? Do you teach samatha or vipassana? And instead I used to say, I teach bhavana. Bhavana means development. Development of what? Development of the mind, you can say that, but it's much better to say, the development of the Eightfold Path. That's the type of meditation you teach, which then becomes inclusive of all the factors of the Eightfold Path, not just one or not just two. So the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the cessation of suffering, is to be developed. Uh, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the cessation of suffering, has been developed. And the Buddha could say that. Thus, in regard to things unheard before in this generation, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. Now, uh, in the Dhammachaka, that little saying there, thus, in regard to things unheard before in this generation, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light, that is repeated after almost every other um, section. So it gets repeated so much it loses its power. And so it's nice to be able just to put it once in the end. Things unheard before in this generation, this is what the Buddha penetrated in this generation. Did he invent it for the first time in this um, universe? Had he heard it before? In another life? <laughs> Sometimes people say, oh, this is the Buddha's great discovery. But of course, if you've been following the teachings which I've been giving for a long while, in the Gatikara Sutta, the Buddha tells about his previous life as, a, as Jyotipala, the monk with Kasapa the Buddha. And this is something which all the Buddhas are famous for, teaching the Four Noble Truths. And so, Siddhartha Gautama would have heard that in the previous life, 
from Kasapa. And it's very hard to argue that that was impossible. So the Buddha's finding this path in the jungle, one of his similes, which had been grown over, hadn't been used for such a long time. But it's a path which is always there. And sometimes it's not used, grown over. It's not something he kind of makes for himself, by himself. It's a rediscovering of an ancient path. But in this generation, it was unheard before. So rose vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge and light. Next he continues, is there any questions yet? Please, if you need to ask a question, please put a hand up. Okay. So I considered this Dhamma that has been awakened to is profound, hard to see and hard to understand. Is that true? Hard to understand. This is the Buddha saying this, so it is hard to understand. So if you feel you can really understand it, be careful. There's a lot of things in there which you haven't seen. Peaceful and sublime. The idea of being peaceful, in other words, which calms things down a lot. Unattainable by mere reasoning. Reasoning is good. It stops you accepting some things which are really impossible to accept. But nevertheless, reason is not enough for you to be able to actually penetrate to this Dhamma. And I've given many sort of examples of that and I'm not going to bore you with the, the flower pot experiment again or the, exper the idea of the um, tadpole and the water grows into a frog and now knows what it's like when there's no water because experience that when it becomes a frog because a tadpole can never know that. So this is your personal experience where it's unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle and to be experienced by the wise, not to be believed, to be experienced. And that's one of the reasons why teaching is one thing, giving you more knowledge is important, but trying to train everybody in meditation and letting go in order that you can experience these things for yourself. But this generation delights in attachment to a self. The Buddha is talking about 2,500 years ago, but it's valid enough today. Probably even more so, I'm not sure. Uh, this generation delights in attachment to a self, takes delight in attachment to a self, and rejoices in attachment to a self. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely the empty process of cause and effect, dependent cessation and origination. And that is a pretty honest translation of what the Buddha said. And the attachment to a self, thinking that this uh, permanent essential being somewhere inside of you is the most important thing, that's why a lot of times when I ask people about, you know, who, who's the most important person in the world, a lot of people say, oneself. No. <laughs> 
the attachment to a self, it delights in that attachment, rejoices in the attachment to a self. And they think that Buddhism and many other meditative paths are just there to make yourself wiser with less suffering. Not to realize the sense of a self is one of the great causes of suffering. And so, and it's, and it's hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely the empty process of cause and effect. This is in the Kachana Gota Sutta, one of the famous ones, where the Buddha was saying, you can't say there is, you can't say there isn't, you, but there is a, another of what we call the middle ways, a cause and effect, a cause arising, giving uh, rise to the next effect, and the previous cause totally vanishing. You have a new effect, and that effect is the cause for something new. That second effect vanishes and a new effect happens. It's like the string of beads, but with no string going from one bead to the next. It's just a cause and effect process with nothing in between. You can't say there is something, which means all the time, or even for a few moments, because things change too quickly. You can't say there isn't anything, because things are arising all the time. So they have this beautiful cause and effect process, which once a person can understand that and embrace it, it gives you this third option. A lot of times people, they, argue against the sense of Buddhism saying there's no self. They say, well, what gets reborn then? It's not, can't really say it, even reborn. It's just a process continues. An empty process continues. And so when a parinibbana happens, the cessation of everything, it's nothing gets destroyed. Just a process ends. It's a third way between there's nothing, the Buddha doesn't say that, he doesn't say there is something, there's this in between, a process which comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes. It's hard to see the empty process of cause and effect, dependent cessation and origination. And usually they just say the dependent cause and effect and they use that for dependent origination. But I just, this is one thing which, I can't really say I'm distorting the Buddha's teachings, but many times people talk about the truth of dependent origination, but that's right next to dependent cessation. The two always go together. Dependent cessation and dependent origination. So I managed to make sure I put that in there. Furthermore, it is hard to embrace this truth namely the stilling and disappearance of the will, sapasankara samatha. In this particular case, uh, I've always knew that sankara included the will, but there are some statements of the Buddha which makes it really clear that that's one of the main good translations of the word sankara. Will, and that caused by the will. 
Sometimes you may think of this word sankara, you probably heard this translation as volitional formations. Volitional. It's the will and what's caused by the will. And it's a much more powerful statement to say, hard for such a generation to see this truth, uh, to embrace this truth, naming this, namely the stilling and disappearance of the will. The relinquishing of everything has been acquired. The destruction of wanting, everything fading away, cessation, nibbana. All starting from sabha-sankhara samatha. Samatha means the stilling of the will. Totally sabha-sankhara samatha. Destruction of wanting, everything fading away, cessation, nibbana. And some of people sometimes complain, Ajahn Brahm, usually the word we have here for will Dunha, often people translate it as craving. But I used to use that word craving a lot, but craving in the English language is for only for intense forms of, of wanting. I might want for a glass of water, but I can't call that craving. But this word Dunha includes all types of wanting even to the point that dunha also is a word that was used for thirst. So it doesn't mean just such strong forms of wanting, it means all wanting. Sometimes that's a tough one to understand, to accept. What would happen if you gave up all wanting? You'd be an arahant. There are beings with little dust in their eyes that are wasting through not hearing this Dhamma. There will be those who will understand this Dhamma. And our Buddhist society of Western Australia is always well cleaned. So if you come in here, uh, it's very unlikely you'll have much dust <laughs> caused by what's in here. There may be some dust by what you bring in from outside, but it's not our fault. So hopefully you are a being with a little dust in their eyes. So, questions? Or do you want me to go on? Okay. Is there a question? Go on. Could you comment on the word light? On light, okay. Yeah, okay, no. That's just that saying. Yeah. It's aloka. That is why... Um, what is this place called? Dhammaloka. And the word aloka, light. Sometimes people thought this meant dhammaloka, like the world of the dhamma. But as actually I suggested to Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Jakra, when we named this place, to call it Dhamma-Aloka, the light of the Dhamma. And I thought that would be much nicer, and just not an ordinary light, but a very powerful, 
a metaphorical light. It's so is it metaphorical? Very much so, yes. This is not nimittas. This is just um, a metaphorical, now you can see things. So it's a kind of synonym for wisdom and true knowledge? And yes, indeed, yes. Thank you for a question. It always gives me encouragement when I hear there's a question. It means people have been listening. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Okay, so let's go to the noble truth of suffering. So that was just the introduction, like the prologue, trying to make it so that what you're hearing is not what you read in a book every week, or every month, I hope. So here we go, the noble truth of suffering. Now what is suffering? This is the first kind of introduction to what suffering is. What is the noble truth of suffering? Rebirth is suffering. That was the first thing. Rebirth is suffering. And I remember when I first heard that, I paused too. Why do you call that suffering straight away? It's not just rebirth into the human realm, sometimes even being reborn into a, a, a heavenly realm, a beautiful realm where there's no physical body, a mind-made body, and beautiful happiness and joy. That's suffering too. And that was one of the main reasons why the Buddha, on his path, was to trying to find an end to suffering and realize if you want to end suffering, you have to end rebirth. So each one of us here, you are alive, you are still suffering. You blew it when you got reborn. <laughs> now the only way out is to make sure you don't get reborn again. Aging is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, pain, unhappiness and distress. Keep on changing some of the translations because some of them are not that accurate, but these are better, I would reckon. Experiencing what is unpleasant is suffering. Do any of you have had that today? Missing what is pleasing is suffering. Have you had that today? <laughs> Not getting what one wants is suffering. Have you got what you want yet? Suppose I had magic powers and I said, Venerable Dhamma Deepa, you've been a very wonderful attendant this weekend. I will give you a gift. I will give you whatever you want. <laughs> what would you ask for? <laughs> okay, Bill, you've got the microphone. <laughs> what would you ask for? Enlightenment. Enlightenment. So you want to be enlightened, that's suffering. <laughs> it is, because do you really know what enlightenment is? So we want something which we don't really know what it is. And that's kind of my fault, by not sort of explaining enlightenment fully enough for everybody to understand. It's not something which even fits as something which can be achieved by wanting it. 
So when we let go of all wanting, then you're much closer. And that's one of the reasons why, you've heard me say this in other talks, at an airport somewhere in the world, I'm not quite sure where, talking to a gentleman many years ago, he was from the Middle East, and he was the one who told me about the two worst curses in the Arab world. And the worst curse, you can, second worst curse you can give to somebody was to wish somebody, may the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. <laughs> the fleas of a thousand camels infest your armpits. That's pretty gross. But worse than that was, may you get whatever you want as soon as you want it. That was the worst curse you can give anybody. You can figure that one out for yourself, but I thought that was brilliant. So anyway, uh, not getting what one wants is suffering. What was that thing? It was, um, yeah, it was Voltaire, no, not Voltaire. It was one of those uh, English philosopher, uh, wise guy. I think you remind me who it was in a moment. He said, there's only two tragedies in life. The, thir the first is not getting what you want. And the second tragedy in life is getting what you want. So who was it? Oscar Wilde, yes, that's it. And I thought that was also really wonderful. Not getting what you want, we all know that. But getting what you want. That is also suffering. Because everything you... Yeah, okay. Pem. Oh, yeah. Getting what you don't want. Yeah, indeed. But getting what you want is also suffering. I thought that was really brilliant. You could see that. It never lives up to its promise. The objects of desire are always unfaithful to you. Anyway, in short, the five components of existence, what they call the five candors. I think you all heard those candors, we're going to come up to them in a few moments. The five candors that fully describe your body and mind are suffering. And what is rebirth? And I put this one down here because sometimes people think, as a Buddha described rebirth, it can be rebirth in the moment. Or someone who says, you know, they wake up in the morning, it's like having a birthday again. So please give me a cake. But no, how the Buddha meant for rebirth is in whatever type of beings, of whatever species of beings, there is rebirth, coming to be, coming forth, the appearance of the candors, the acquisition of the senses, that is called rebirth. So this is how the Buddha described rebirth. Not rebirth in the moment, but rebirth in the usual meaning of the term. What is aging? In whatever type of beings, in whatever species of beings there is aging, 
decrepitude, broken teeth, grey hair, wrinkled skin, shrinking with age. I'm hoping for that later on. <laughs> Decay of the senses. This is called aging. What is death? In whatever type of being, whatever species of being, there is a passing away, demise, a disappearance, a death, a dying, decease, a destruction of the candles, a discarding of the body, that is called death. It's almost like looking in a dictionary. But the Buddha did this to make sure that people don't try and misinterpret some of these statements to be something which was not really meant, it meant real uh, rebirth, aging and death. What is sorrow? Whatever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, sorrow, mourning, anguish, grief, unhappiness, that is called sorrow. What is lamentation? Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature and is crying out, weeping, making much noise for grief, wailing, that is called lamentation. What is pain? Whatever painful feeling results from bodily contact, that is called pain. What is unhappiness? Whatever mental painful feeling arises from the mind, that is called unhappiness. So these two are important because it just distinguishes the mental unhappiness, the mental pain, and the physical pain. They're two different categories. And what is distress? Whatever by any kind of misfortune, anguish arises from something of a painful or unpleasant nature, that is called distress. What is experiencing what is unpleasant, whoever has unwanted, disliked, unpleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches or mind objects, or whoever meets those who wish you harm, cause you discomfort or insecurity, that is called experiencing the unpleasant. What is missing, the, what is pleasing, Whoever has pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, or mind objects, or whoever encounters well wishes, those who provide you with comfort or security, such as family or friends, and then is deprived of such interaction or connection, that is called missing what is pleasing. What is not getting what one wants? In being subject to birth, this desire arises. This is an example, it's not just uh, uh, totally explaining what not getting what one wants is. In being subject to birth, this desire arises. Oh, that we were not subject to birth, that we might never be reborn. But this cannot be gained by desire, by wanting. This is an example of not getting what one wants. In being subject to aging, to disease, to death, to sorrow, lamentation, pain, negativity and distress, might one they might want. Oh, that we were not subject to aging, to disease, to death, to sorrow, lamentation, pain, negativity and distress, that we might not come to these things. But this cannot be gained by wanting. That is another example of not getting what one wants. You can't get that by wanting, so how can you get these things? Sorry? Letting, letting go, yeah, by practicing a full path, the whole lot. Yeah, it's very good. So now, any questions so far? 
Okay, let's do five components of existence. I'm not just um, bamboozling you too much, am I? Am I bamboozling you just the right amount? <laughs> okay. Five components of existence, the candors. This is who you are. If you want to find out who you are, this is the answer. You ever wanted to know who you are? Here we go. And how in particular are the five components of existence suffering? They are as follows. The body, rupa. Experience, vedana. Usually called feeling, but I don't like that translation. The reason is because they always said there's three types of vedana and that made the first translator, Professor Rice Davids, call it sort of uh, feeling. Experience is a much closer translation to what the word Vedana means. Perception, excellent translation. Sankara is will and other mental formations, Sankara. And the last one, if you can read carefully there, it's not consciousness, consciousnesses. There's six different types of consciousness. Those are the five components of existence that are suffering. And if people feel that I'm just being just a, a hair splitter by calling it consciousnesses rather than consciousness, when you do translate it accurately as consciousnesses, it has a totally different meaning and it doesn't let people get confused by the idea the Buddha talked about consciousness as something which was really important or a consciousness which is beyond the five khandhas. What the Buddha is saying is all consciousness, six types of it, that is what that fifth khandha is. These are the five components of existence that are suffering. Yeah, go on, yeah. Uh, over the last few years, I've seen a controversy where someone's disputing the, the four mental parts, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana. I learned that they were called Nama. Oh, yeah. Thank and then there's Rupa, which kind of means um, mind and matter. So this has is, this is kind of started to become into a changed meaning. And I was just wondering if you'd comment on anything to do with that, I'd appreciate Indeed. that. Indeed. Please excuse me here, but um, I'm a monk who's not afraid. And so the Buddha never taught Abhidharma. And the Abhidharma came up and just made that distinction there. Nama Rupa is not supposed to include Vinyana. That's why in dependent originations the Buddha taught, no Vinyana, Pachiya, Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa Pachaya Vinyana. They're different. But nevertheless, in the Abhidharma, they put Vinyana inside Nama Rupa. Inside Nama. Uh, I saw some people translating it as name. So the experience, perception, mental formations, and consciousness were called name. Yeah. Because of the Pali. Yes. Seems to have a mean, double meaning or something. Yes, I know. But that doesn't really make sense to most people. Name is what you're called. And this, this is something much deeper than that. Yes, Prem. Oh, good, we've got something going now. 
Ajah, this consciousnesses is the consciousness of each of the five sense doors, right? Ears, eyes, and That's tongue. one way of distinguishing it of the six sense doors. Yeah. Consciousness of um, from the eye, the ear, the, the nose, uh, the tongue, taste, and physical feeling, and of course, a mental experience. Yeah. So, don't they all go out through your mental sense? So, therefore, it's not one. So, they, they sorry? You, even your eye sense, doesn't it pass through your mental and sense? It doesn't always pass through, it can do. In other words, it doesn't really pass through, but what happens is the mental conscious can know the other sense consciousness which happened a few moments ago. Your sight knows, and then the mind can take on that object for itself. Different things. It's like the pre-recorded version. Sorry? The pre-recorded version comes from the mind. Yes, indeed. Right. Not that I, I didn't know the previous. This is one of the, the problems. I'm not quite sure about you, but one of those philosophical statements, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I know. And it's very easy to dispute that, because when you think you don't know, you know afterwards. There's a time lapse. I think, therefore I knew that I thought. And when you put in that chronolo chronology of sense experience, the illusion of there always being somebody there who knows what's going on and which gives rise to the illusion of a me and a mine, a self, that can be very easily discarded. Because there are many times you can see, you can hear, you can feel, you can taste, but you don't know that. You've got so much going on in that brain, there's only important objects which you become aware of. You know all of those wonderful psychology experiments which they do in good universities these days, which should be given much more prominence. The one about somebody going up, I think this was done in Harvard, somebody, a student, went up to the victim to try and ask him a question, which is the way to the I say the biology labs. And then somebody came between them with a big door, very impolite. And then the, the student asked the victim again, which way to the biology labs? He said, oh, it's over that way. But what had happened is they changed the student. The first student went along with the door and was replaced by another person. And they changed all the combinations to see whether the victim could recognize that now the question was being asked by somebody else. And a lot of time they never realize the first question would be sometimes be asked by an Afro-American, the next one by sort of a, a Chinese person, because the person only noticed the question. That was the most important. They saw the person, but that was basically just not important, so the brain never registered it. Yeah. Is a memory got a role to play in here? Memory again is 
you remember that memory, a lot of time that memory, I don't know if you can really call it a mental function, it's like a brain function. That's one of the reasons I love experiments. Well, not really experiments, but just, well, you call it called experiments. Remember one where they had this poor gentleman uh, who'd just been remarried, and then he couldn't remember, he had some sort of accident, and he lost all, lost all memory of the past. He didn't know who his, his wife was. And they just hypnotized him. And hypnosis is a way of accessing the mind, not the brain. And during that hypnosis, he could remember everything. He just ran out of his hut and he hit his head on an open shutter. And, that, and he could remember everything in hypnosis. But then afterwards, when he came out of hypnosis, he couldn't remember anything. So that memory, this, the, the memory which is stored in the mind, which also has the past life memories, and the memory stored in the brain, which obviously not past life at all. This brain began when I was you know, just born in this lifetime. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, okay. That's just getting more useful. Now, one of the worst things I like doing is just reading out suttas, which you can read for yourself. Discussing it's really nice. Um, the, do you mind just um, clarify one thing? What's the difference between the mental formation and the sixth type of consciousness, that's mind? Okay, the mental formations, they call it mental formations, sankhara, is what's really caused by the will. Because that will, in its even most, uh, they call it refined, I wouldn't call it refined, and it's maybe subtle form is just wanting wanting creates things. And you know, that wanting which creates things, that's like the mental formations. It's the result of sankhara, either the, what, the sankhara in action, the will in action, or what the will actually creates. Does the will live in the mind? Not really, the mind is separate from the will. That's one of the reasons why in deep meditations the will disappears. And then you're left with a much purer mind. I don't want to say the pure mind, a much purer mind, because uh, it hasn't got the, the agitation of will disturbing it. The Buddha described it like a body of water, without, he described it without any fish in it to disturb it. I usually describe it as a body of water with no waves on the surface, not even a ripple perceive the mind consciousness, so is that not will as well, or that would be...? As far as I'm pretty sort of strict, the only way you can really understand and perceive the mind consciousness is if you experience a jhana, because the five senses are now gone. Afterwards you can recognize the mind consciousness, but to be able to see it just by itself, without anything else disturbing it, to really understand it, you do need those deep meditations where everything else vanishes. Then afterwards you can recognize it, but not beforehand. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I was not going to say anything here. Ajahn Brahm, thanks so very, very much for this uh, Sutano. It, this, from my point of view, it summarizes the Buddha's 
teaching, the whole teaching, he teaches suffering, end of suffering. You know. Others, if you don't go into this, you'll you be going round and round. Okay, yeah. My question, the thing is, okay, the Buddha was telling us, you know, the, um, you, we can read his teaching, we can he hear his teaching, it doesn't make much sense, and we have to, we have to experience his teaching, you know. So the experience part for all of us, okay, now that you bring in suffering, you know, the, the, the five aggregates, it comes back to our feelings in it. Did you find that mind or matter, our feeling, our uh, perception, our mental forming ideas, you know, whole, the whole system, you know. So this, from here, it's confirmed here, that's what I've been, thanks for bringing it out to me, you know. So the, the problem is whenever we have our disturbing emotion, you know, disturbing feeling, that's the suffering confirmed here, okay, we will have to investigate it, you know. that's how, you know, and how would say, bring in the Buddha's teaching, okay, oh, that's for my, something happens, and then not so good, I have this negative feeling, this thing, and then watch, you know, watch the mind, or watch how, how it works, you know, by watching this, Ajahn Brahm said, we are under control, you know, by not knowing all these things, we are led, you know, you know, led by the false ego, you know, you, 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 you understand, then we, we, we have any, like, problem, I don't feel, well. oh, you panic, you go and see doctor and all, or we have, sorry, we have the um, stress, anxiety, too long comes depression, you know. So by knowing all these feelings, we work on all these things, and then we, we how do I say, we lessen our problem, you know, like big problems become small, small problems. Yeah, and eventually... Yeah, that's this teaching from here. Oh, thank you so much. It, it brings me... Uh, it brings... Um, how do I say... Maybe a little bit of enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, okay. You see what I mean? Yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, but eventually we keep on going until when we don't have so many external problems, we're more calm in our life. It's easier to get more still. You find out there's still some suffering coming in. Mm. So eventually we do the whole Eightfold Path, as the Buddha said. Mm. And that's just you know, with the right view and the, the right motivation, keeping precepts, keeping sense restraints, yeah, I know. Yeah, and yeah, mindfulness. Yeah. And then yeah. that leads to this deep stillness. Mm -hmm. When things vanish and disappear, it's the five senses disappear and the mind becomes very clear. And the will disappears as well. So this yeah. is your personal experience of just you vanishing. Yeah, I understand what I mean. Just important yeah. thing here. Yeah. I understand, you know, for the Eightfold Path, okay, those new people, they have to practice all this, you know, like understanding all of it. For those who are more advanced you now, okay, can we just go straight into the feeling? But you do have to disappear and be able to sit very still until everything vanishes. That is your level. Yeah. No, yeah, it's yeah, everybody's level. Yeah, 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 yeah. We have to be sort of calm before we make the the, the, the decision. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes. So, are they are over there? Thank you, Ajahn. Um, I'm looking at the fuel. Um, which is neither the same as the five components of existence, nor separate, but it's um, the fuel that sustains them, and I'm wondering, is it that that actually brings them into being in the first place? 
or makes them stick together. Yeah, I haven't really got there yet, but nevertheless, sorry, it's, it's, it is the next one, but it's no trouble at all. This is where that sometimes they call, you know, the, uh, you know, the upadana, the panchupadana kanda dukkha. They also put the word upadana in there in some of the teachings. And so they wonder, what is this upadana? Why do you add it? Why don't you just say the panchakanda are suffering? And it's also it's because that in that, those five kandas, there was a kind of fuel in there, a sort of a source of energy which keeps those five kandas going, not just from day to day, moment to moment, from life to life. And you can actually see that there. It's the experience and the perception and the, especially the mental formations. They actually produce the next set of kandas from moment to moment. And that upadana, literally upadana, and here I just always struck with uh, where Pali and English come together. And even like upa, you know, the idea of you know, up is very, very close to the Pali meaning. And adana, you know that by adinadana, veramani, sikapadang, samadhiyami, taking what is not given. The adana means taking, receiving, grabbing on. And he, grabbing it, taking it up. And taking up is like what fuel is. A motor car takes up the petrol. A, um, the aircon takes up the electricity fuel. And this is the fuel which we take up, and the fuel we take up for these candles right now is supplied by the last set of five candles. It's like, you don't want to call it self, but it's like self-sustaining, these five candles keeping on with their own inner fuel source. That's Upadana. I don't know if that explains things or not. Yeah, what's again, yeah, come on, please. Oh no, it's over here now. And, uh, okay, you can shout it out. Okay. It sounds like something that is saying that the universe wants us to come into being. And there's a fuel that's there before everything. And that's what's making us come into being. No, the fuel is already in those five candles. And so we can't take it back that far. Okay. And all the Buddha is talking about here, what he's really focusing on is the fuel in this life of Suli about what takes her from this moment to the next moment to the next moment will take them into the next birth, if you get reborn. When he goes back to the origin of this universe, the Buddha said quite beautifully, the origin of this universe cannot be sort of perceived. And one of the reasons why is that why should it have an origin? It keeps on going and going and going. And the idea of this is another sutta altogether where the Buddha did actually mention the different types of 
consciousnesses in this world, especially even like plant life, having a form of um, rudimentary consciousness which can, you know, develop, you might say evolve into more complex life forms. So, you know, when sometimes, you know, you make fun, you shouldn't make fun, like uh, Tibetan Buddhists who don't want, uh, they decide they're not going to become enlightened until the last blade of grass is enlightened. They have a point they're recognizing in blades of grass or carrots or pieces of tofu or anything else which a vegetarian or vegan eats. That too is potential life. So this fuel is only connected to the candles, and it's a candles. If you become enlightened, you have put out that fuel, and yes, indeed. The other uh, simile, which I'm very uh, always use, is a simile of the the flame of an oil lamp. Use the flame of an oil lamp, or like of a candle. A candle, the flame depends upon three things, the heat, the wick, and the wax. Those are like the three fuels. And when any one of those fuels uh, is exhausted, the flame goes out. So what is your fuels which keeps you going? When any one of those, well all those ones are exhausted, then you go out. And that's a simile which was used, and it was a powerful simile because uh, in the villages in India in the time of the Buddha, the word which even kids would use if the oil lamp went out, Mummy, Mummy, the oil lamp is nibbanad. That was the usual meaning of the word. It's got a metaphysical meaning now, which is fair enough. But that was the word to describe when a flame goes out, when you go out, you've nibbana, no more fuel. Here we go. I hope there's not too many. Uh, Dignakaya 22, is it Sangiti or Dasutra? Because I saw that they seem to have been chopped off. They are indeed. So what I, saw, I think it was Sujato or Tanesra who seemed to have chopped these off recently in one of the, the new things. I didn't, they just wasn't there. They okay. listed 20 in the Dignakaya. Okay, yeah. No, what I did there is, this is actually um, uh, everywhere, just the five candles, but I just put this in here as a reference so somebody can have a look in there if they wish and find out that what I'm saying is actually taught by the Buddha. Later on, you can't see it, it's a long time before I go, if I say something in these, uh, in these talks here, it's my little commentary, I usually do it in, oh, I haven't got it down, it's a long way down, I usually do it in italic, to say that's me trying to explain something. But where it's actually the Buddha's teachings, I try and give them a, um, a reference, so you can check out. Yeah, I was only concerned that, that some bhikkhus seem to be taking those two suttas out and then they're only going the Diginikaya up to the 20. That was what I was just... Uh, okay, no, that doesn't uh, make any sense at all. Yeah, thank you very much, but clarify. 
But there's something also, we're going to have to finish off in a few moments. There's something else which I would say, and this was some advice which I got from Venomanyana Ponika, who did a lot of translations. And um, he was a German monk, and his story was when he was young, uh, I think before the Second World War, he was in a beer garden in Germany with his friends. He was a young man having a beer. And then in the house which stored the beer, which was serving it, where the, the landlord lived, there was a fire. And the landlord and his family ran out, and many of Fenomenyana Ponika's friends ran in to get free beer. And you can understand that a few people are giggling. <laughs> and then the floor and roof collapsed on them and many of those young people were killed. And because they were killed so tragically because of desire, wanting free beer, and these were the people which Yanaponika as, a, as a, a kid grew up with. And he said it was very traumatic for him to have to go in to the rubble and try and save or try and at least retrieve the body of these young people, his friends, schoolmates, and after that, he just could not sort of do anything else except he went to Sri Lanka to become a monk. He was a very wonderful monk. And then, when I was with him, we were discussing many things. Uh, with Bhikkhu Bodhi was there as well, and the three of us, and Venerable Rakata as well. And when we were there, he said something which I'll never forget. He said, never interpret the teachings of the Buddha uh, in light of just one or two ambiguous passages. Interpret the ambiguous passages in terms of all the other teachings of the Buddha which are far more numerous. So teachings like the five candors are very numerous. They reoccur in so many different places. So those teachings which are clear, repeated, again and again, that's your standard and any other passages which can be interpreted in many different ways, interpret them in light of the great mass of clear teachings of the Buddha. It makes a lot of sense, but nevertheless still sometimes people take this teaching or that teaching, one or two teachings, on the edge of the suttas, and they are unclear because a lot of them are like poetic. And in poetry, we don't use the same precise language as we do uh, in prose. I, was, I like to quote, I wandered lonely as a cloud. That was William Wordsworth. Does that mean William Wordsworth could levitate? He wandered like a cloud. It was just emotive of feelings. But that's why poetry is never precise. It's trying to evoke something internal, emotions. So that's why that some of the poetic pieces of the Buddha you should be very careful with. Interpret them in light of all the other great teachings of the Buddha which are in prose. And I thank him for that. You know, sometimes you just, you have very good fortune, never expected to see all these people. I'm just,
going into, I think I've taught enough today, but going into some nice nostalgia. The first time I went to Sri Lanka, that you decided to go, this was when Ron Battersby, he was looking after us. And we went up to Kandy, and Bhikkhu Bodhi was in the same train. So we could actually talk to him, he invited us to stay next to where he was staying in the forest hermitage where Nyanaponika was. But even before then, we went to see Venerable Piyadasi to pay respects, and all these other great monks were there. My Venerable, uh, what's his name again, Jana Wimmela? And this monk would, he was another German monk, he would never give a talk to anybody. And Bhikkhu Bodhi said, just go in there and pay respects. It took an hour before I came out. <laughs> And he sat me down and gave me a nice Dhamma talk. And at that time I said that was the best Dhamma talk I'd ever heard. It even beat Ajahn Chah's teachings. Brilliant. And when I came out, <laughs> Bhikkhu Bodhi said, where have you been? I've just been having this wonderful um, Dhamma talk. He said, what? He never gives me any Dhamma talk, never, and I live here. <laughs> and you just come in and you get a Dhamma talk. <laughs> I had a wonderful time. I met all these wonderful monks and uh, got some really nice advice. So sometimes you never know what you're going to hear and how you hear it and where you hear it. You can't plan things. So anyway, how are you going? Shall we carry on or have you had enough? Can we, get, sorry, can we carry on and don't stop this? Carry on with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll just... Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll, do, I'll just, I'll, I'll, yeah, so I won't, I'll stop now. I'll just do the last little piece here, which is kind of fits in. I've done the fuel thing. I'll just mention it though. The fuel is neither the same as the five components of existence, nor is the fuel separate from the five components of existence. It is desire and wanting that is part of these five components of existence that is the fuel that sustains them. The desire and wanting that's in the five candors, that's what keeps them going. Now, this is a, I thought I good to say this because this makes it really clear. Samyutta 22, any kind of body, whatever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. Now this includes you know, all bodies of all types of beings, not just human bodies, but even animal bodies, whether you believe in them or not, ghost bodies, uh, yaka bodies, heavenly being bodies, all types of bodies. This is a body component of existence. And all bodies should be seen as they really are with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. You look in a mirror and you see this face which you can recognize, bears your name. This is not you. This am I, am I not. This is not a permanent essence. Instead of saying a self, I use the word permanent essence. Yeah, there's a bit of a mouthful, but nevertheless, it gets the idea of what the sense of an atta, a self, has to be. It has to be permanent, has to be essential. 
not able to be split up, the essential part of you. This is not mine, you don't own your body. Any of you who've been sick know that. It'd be wonderful if your body behaved. I don't know, my body doesn't behave. You get tired of the wrong time, you get energy when you shouldn't get energy. This I am not, this is not a permanent essence. Any kind of experience, Vedana, whatever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. And some of the experiences you have, especially in deep meditation, I mean, they really are superior, they're incredibly subtle, they're amazing. But this is just the experience component of existence. All experience should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine. This I am not, this is not a permanent essence. It's one of the reasons why when you do get into deep meditations, you can't own it. That's not who you are. It'd be wonderful if, you know, you experience a first or second jhana and say, okay, yeah, I want to get into second jhana. I've done it once, I know jhanas. And you think, I'm going to do it again. You're going to suffer. You just create causes, you can't create the events. Any perception whatsoever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the perception component of existence. And all perception should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. I don't know if you have an enemy. Is that a true perception? Is it going to last forever? or your enemy, maybe they can become a friend. Who do you hate most of all? Kim Jong-un? <laughs> Mr. Putin? <laughs> but this is not yours, it's just a perception, that's all. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not a permanent essence, perception. Any kind of will and other mental formations, whatever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. This is the will, the mental formations components of existence. All will should be seen as they really are with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. Yeah, I'll pause there. I found that so powerful. You mean I don't own my will? I even call it my will. What a mistake that is. It's just will, that's all. It's not mine. I'm not responsible, am I? <laughs> Why did you come to this talk today? Did you have any choice? Of course you didn't, that's why you're here. When you start to see the causes, you see there are other things, not just this phenomena which we assume to be the will. Anyway, that's a whole other talk. So the Buddha says, all will should be seen as it really is with the correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This, I'm not the will. It's not a permanent essence. And this is, the will is one of the places where most people feel they exist. You're the one who makes choices. 
any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future or present, one's own or others, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near. This is the consciousnesses component of existence. All consciousnesses should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not a permanent essence. All kinds of consciousness, cosmic consciousness, original mind consciousness, ground of all being consciousness, any type of consciousness. That's what it says. This is a consciousness is component of existence. And all consciousnesses should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not a permanent essence. I think that's enough for today, unless there's some questions. It's getting on to 4.30. Okay, you got some questions from overseas? Oh my goodness. We'll just do three and do it quickly because otherwise, just three. After you become a Narahap, if you don't disappear right away, that means you still need to have your life. How to have no wanting when you still have a life? You don't have any wanting which causes rebirth, and a lot of time if there's no purpose to your life, in other words, if you're an Arahat, a lay person, they usually say you have seven days and then you will die. And people say, that's weird, Ajahn Brahm. But that's true. Because the purpose of your life, the wanting, is not there. If you become a monk or a nun, there's a purpose in your life to be a field of merit. And then you can continue on. It's one of the reasons why when a person becomes fully enlightened, they usually get ordained pretty quickly. Fast track. Nicholas, I know that you're always talking, I should I should or not become a monk one day. But honestly, if you get fully enlightened, you have no choice anymore. You'd have to ordain, otherwise, or you'd just die. People think that's weird. Well, you know the nature of the mind, especially when you're still that will, and notice how those jhanas work. It's, it's true. Nothing to keep you going. So thank you for that question from Gloria. Uh, from Bulgaria. Is past life recollection a verbal like thoughts or a non-verbal experience? It's non-verbal. It's like you read re back there again. Does one remember the different languages they spoke in those past lives? Uh, probably you can, but you don't really need that. Right now, do you notice the languages you're speaking? Usually, just you take those languages for granted. But the past life recollections are usually not verbal, not thoughts, re-experience. It's one of the reasons why, if you ever get into the past life recollections, please be careful, because if you get one of the closest and strongest memories of your past life, is often your death in your previous life. And that's closest, and it's very, very powerful. And a few people have done that, and they've complained and said, please, Ajahn Brahm, warn people. If you're getting a past life memory, and it's your previous death, 
just say earlier please and go back to a, an easier memory to, um, to re-experience and then there's no problem at all and of course sometimes people you do that you get into a, a previous um, life memory and it's very really unpleasant you don't want to do it ever again and that's such a shame and this is Pierre Angela Ajahn Bam is organizing and cleaning a house so it's hygienic, pleasant and clean for inhabitants and visitors, a type of craving. Yeah, it's kind craving, but it's still wanting. So, you're a human being. You're not enlightened yet. That's one of the reasons why if you're a monk or a nun, then you try and keep it hygienic, but not that much. That's why other people usually clean my rooms. <laughs> Okay, there was another question here, and I did those ones pretty quickly, so here we go. Is it possible that through periods of long and deep meditation one can have a feeling that all wanting is gone, also in times between sitting meditation periods? Yes, you can have that feeling, but there's subtle uh, feelings of wanting as well. It's all types of wanting, not even the great feelings of wanting, and sometimes those wantings you don't see. That's one of the reasons why to be able to experience those deep states of meditation shows you that the wanting has been subdued. So you actually know what it's like not to want anything in the whole world. To be totally at peace. Even though that wanting can come up afterwards, you know what it feels like. If memory is a brain function, how come some people remember past lives? This is because the memory now has become more like a re-experiencing in the mind. Memory is a brain function, but you can go past that memory and go into the mind. That's why those experiences we call near-death experiences. People who you know, have got a coma, have got brain cancer, and basically their mind is not, their brain is not working anymore, and they can still remember so much. That's fascinating, because there's no way the brain is not operative anymore, but they can still remember. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that, and if you are bamboozled, please come to the next. <laughs> okay, go on. Quantum, quantum entanglement. How does it prove non, uh, no, no, no will? No, well, I, d I didn't talk about quantum entanglement. That's a really weird phenomena, right. which uh, is cause and effect seems to be sort of um, abolished, because you know the, something happens to one particle in one end of the universe, and the other antiparticle uh, responds almost immediately, like information is suddenly passed really quickly, impossibly fast from one place to another, and that's what called the quantum entanglement. But it doesn't have too much to do with what we've been saying here today. <laughs> okay, it has to be the last question now because it's 4.30 and the car is already Brown. there, yeah? yeah? Sorry, I am very impressed by today's sutta, no? but you brought in the five aggregates too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is there a possibility whereby you, no? okay, or maybe you can suggest something, whereby we go directly, you know, directly into dealing with our problem, you know, 
You know, here it says suffering and the end suffering, you know. So it says here suffering, it brings in our feeling, everything, and how the search, you know, like a, you know, you, you know, I, I know my way, okay? Yeah. Maybe how we can work, like a work, you know, to, to lessen it and all, you know, all. You see what I mean? Directly in, interacting with, with the teaching. Well, we hear it already, this thing. Yeah, that's the only thing to do, to share, to teach, to advise. That's why the Buddha always said, the Buddha's only point in the way yeah. is for the people who listen to walk that way and find out, find out its truth themselves. But he says... He so I've done my job, now it's up to you. Oh. But the Buddha says, his hearing and, 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 and uh, uh, reading is not, not enough, you know. We have exactly. the, real, the real thing is we have to interact, you know. Not just interact, yeah, yeah. but he have, have meditation retreat centers. Places where you can go and be protected so that you can you know, have that inspiration, encouragement, to be able to walk that path and feel it for yourself. Mm. Honestly, I, when you first started building meditation retreat centers, it's a huge amount of work mm. and running retreats. But every now and again, someone comes up and they just get these really deep meditations. And just you know, one or two people, if that's only one or two people who've got deep meditation uh, in all those years that we've had Jhana Grove Retreat Center, I'd be happy. It will be worth it. But more than that, yeah, many, many people really get into it and they can feel the power of this Dhamma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, see, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Okay, so now we're going to do Arahang Samasam Buddha, which is important because, you know, teaching the word of the Buddha. And for the next time, I will try to make sure that this is put online.